Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Pierre, Mona, and Lucas. Can you please all give an elevator pitch of what you do? Should I start? Yeah. Sure. I'm Pierre, uh, co-founder of Hello Better. Hello Better uh, is a digital therapeutics company. We have uh, 10 products uh, focusing on mental health. Six products are freely available uh, in Germany on prescription. Um, we are about 120 employees uh, to date. We have operations in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and we, are, we have launched a, a Fantech product in the US as well last year. That's, that's for me. Yeah, hi, I'm Mona. I'm the co-founder of MediDoc, which stands for Medical Education and Documentation. And it is our vision to transform healthcare through innovative patient education and give patients access to medically validated information prior to their surgery or specific procedures and to create an overall quality standard for medical information. Uh, we're currently active in three countries, Germany, Switzerland and Austria. And uh, yeah, basically catering to different kinds of clinics, private practices and yeah, trying to do our best there. Um, <clears throat> well, at Alivio, we increase access to mobility for people with lower limb amputations from developing countries. And we do that with an innovative off-the-shelf prosthetic leg. I'm Lucas, the CEO and founder of Alivio. Cool. And today we're going to be discussing how to communicate value to patients. Um, but let's start with how to build value for patients. Um, it would be good to understand. So we basically have three very different solutions here um, that all kind of touch patients in a different way, right? So Hello Better is a digital therapeutic solution. Um, yours is more of an ed educational technology. And then we have more of a physical product. But I wonder if there are similarities here in terms of how we decide to build and um, build value for patients. Yeah, I would probably say that the common ground here is trust um, to start with. I mean, without trust, you know, you don't have any kind of relation between any kind of humans. Uh, if you want someone to, um, to go ahead with what you offer, to take the risk of, of, of trying a solution, they have to first trust in you and in what you offer. So that is the, the basis for anything else to come. Yeah, and I also think it, it all starts with a problem, you know, so we are all here for a reason. And basically, there is a huge need in healthcare for communication for patients, because for the last decades or so, since basically there was this shift and big access to information on the internet online, prior to that, basically, doctors and healthcare professionals were nothing but basically these saints in white coats and uh, basically by yeah the 90s or that started to change and there was a, a huge shift and that gave patients basically that basically democratized the the access to information but at the same time i think that's also a big risk and also a lot of uh, communication that is out there is really unfiltered or not really adequate and tailored to specific patient needs. And I think that's also something that we're trying to tackle. Yeah, <clears throat> I feel from, from what you're saying, and I, and I do agree with you, I think looking at the problem, 
and understanding the problem from a broader perspective feels very important. But not only that, and I think you mentioned that as well, like when you had the intermediary kind of like saying what was important, not necessarily the person. And I feel like that putting the person on the center, very much like looking at their needs and what is actually in the road for them to actually get the quality of care they desire and they need. And that really plays a different role. And it requires a lot of empathy. So I feel like the trust also is built yeah. with some empathy and how you look at the person and how the person feels heard by you. And that can change completely how you develop your product and how you deliver that to the person afterwards. And um, it's interesting. So we talk about trust and understanding the need, right? Um, and I, I think one of the things that um, people may not like intuitively understand about building in healthcare is that you can't really iterate in the same way as in like a non-healthcare business, right? And I wonder how you've kind of tackled that because a lot of building a new product is understanding your customer segment and then iterating what you're building alongside that. Um, but what is like the, the make shit stick first product that you can kind of ship to patients but still make them trust you? So in case of, of DTX, for instance, you're very right to say that regulation can be an impediment to innovation. Uh, certain practices are simply not possible. We're thinking anything that sends data to third-party servers um, for data analytics or the ability to run A-B tests on the fly within the medical application, uh, all of this are essentially forbidden, which forces you to go back to the roots of user research and, um, and do your groundwork before you launch anything. So it's, it's really what you touch base on. Um, so at Hello Better, for instance, we have a really amazing research team. So you have two types of research, right? So then you have the medical research, which is focusing more on the therapeutic aspect and doing the research through or before the clinical trial, running the clinical trial, checking the efficacy. I think that you know getting a positive result and high efficacy already gives you, I would say, the empowers you to feel confident about your solution. And that's a clear message of trust when you are able to communicate on the efficacy of your product. So that's more for the scientific part. For the product, it's really back to user qualitative research, like a lot of user, a lot of user surveys, a lot of interviews. We even do like co-design sessions with with patients uh, because we know that we can't rely as much as other companies on yeah. a pure A/B test uh, trial and error uh, um, method, essentially. Um, so, yeah. That's, that's essentially how we do it, I would say. You're talking about a little bit about the regulation, and I feel like that's <clears throat> it's always a question mark for me, actually, because it's really a fine line between patient security and safety and innovation testing mm -hmm. or approaching mm -hmm. to that field. So I feel like it's a very uh, delicate place to, to be at, yeah. because the regulations exist in order to protect that person. For a good reason, yeah. Exactly, it's not by accident. No. But at the same time, I do feel you that it uh, slows down the process of innovation, how to bring that to the person. And um, I actually wonder how to do that in a safe way, uh, but uh, also in a fast speed. Because as we know, like this yeah. startup scene is actually kind of <clears throat> delicate in terms of timing. And yeah, this is a question that I have for all. Yeah, um, maybe just to, to, add, uh, to add to that, I think 
uh, user testing is, is the, the core actually of the product. And there's also the reason why we're actually here because a lot of products in healthcare that are meant for patients over the last years have not been built like, you know, the, the standards that we're used to from, you know, consumer products. And uh, that's what we at Medidoc also did in the very beginning, that we really looked at the status quo of patient education and how informed consent is, is handled nowadays. And the status quo, it's just pa pages of paper, like analog paper that is like tailored to medical legal aspects and just like making sure that clinics and doctors are legally safe before they operate on the patient. But actually putting the patient first and trying to create and write information and visualize this information so patients actually understand it. Uh, it. It's not that hard. It's actually quite easy. You just need to sit down with a couple of like focus groups, talk about it. And then we just basically uh, thought like, okay, if we were to build patient education from scratch again, how would it look like? And then we came up with this like whole new product of like, it needs to be visual. It needs to be video. It needs to be individualized to specific mm -hmm. patient indication. And then we tested it like uh, for like, we were lucky that we had like a lot of partner clinics in the beginning yeah. who were able to do and willing to do that with us. And at the same time, we also invested quite a lot of our, of our resources and research, uh, our research team to test it with patients in the field. And also, I mean, also in the clinics, like, like hands on. And I think that's the most valuable feedback you can get. Very good point. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's true that the industry is not used to doing user research. It's not in the DNA at all. Exactly. Uh, and not just for patients, but also for doctors. And if you look at probably the, I don't know, one of the most successful uh, health tech uh, company in Europe, like Doctolib, for instance, there were already solutions in the market yeah. for uh, appointment bookings, right? There were a bunch of them. But the difference is that their CEO spent the first two years of the business in his car going from doctor to doctor getting the getting the need and getting the understanding of the of the user which is yeah. in that case the doctor right um, no sorry i that's a really great point and i feel like that's also really helpful in terms of like the, the barriers or the boundaries because the user research you can just like put it together in different countries mm. and whereas you have to do clinical trials where the yeah. issues are very specific and you have to tailor made and that even increases cost on how mm -hmm. to do that so i feel like that's a really good uh, good way for you to, to try something out and get some quick fast answers out of it. Absolutely. And the point of like clinical evidence, I mean, we, we're always, you're always being asked, like, especially if you're like launching products or speaking with physicians and clinics, like where's the clinical evidence? But I feel a lot of time while, while of course, it's important to, to show evidence and that product is working. It's a, it's a currency that's also sort of like outdated because it's still running on very, very um yeah prehistoric grounds and um, nowadays we yeah there, there are different ways how to do it yeah i think it's interesting this like kind of balance between speed and safety because it's not really an industry where you can move fast and break things per se um, and then there's this other point of like okay now i have clinical validation um, a um, how do i kind of use the process of clinical validation to improve my product, but then B, what happens if I need to iterate after that, right? And, and how have you guys managed to solve that problem? Um, because surely, um, you know, if I, if I receive clinical validation for like my product, if I then change it, I will have to run another entire new set of studies, right? 
There's no good answer. <laughs> There's no good answer. No, but really, that's, and that's, that's yeah. one of the biggest challenge. And, mm. you know, it's something we face every day at Hello Better within the six products that are in the, in the DIGA, mm. so reimbursed by healthcare uh, system. Anytime you do something that impacts um, user data or um, the, I would say, the psychoeducation aspect, um, mm. you have to file what is called a significant change. Right. And, yeah. And so you file that change, and the change can simply be refused, rejected. Yeah. And you have to roll back your change. So that is objectively a massive break to innovation, mm. even though it is of course necessary because the, the product was approved in a certain state. You cannot yeah. just be changed without, um, you know, over uh, being overlooked. Uh, but. Um, it, you know, when you work in an edit, it's not the kind of thing you're, you're used to work with when you come from the startup world or tech world. Yeah. Mona, you also have like a digital product, but it's not a digital therapeutic. Is it easier for you to kind of iterate on top of things when you see, when you see kind of data that shows that you should change things in a certain way? Or do you also have to get new clinical validation on changes you make? I think it's absolutely more easy than uh, going through the DIGA process <laughs> in Germany. Um, yeah. But uh, of course, there are also regulations and parts where we need to align with. So if you basically do informed consent, there is a law that basically gives you the information of yeah. what patients need to be educated about. But it's a very, very broad line. And over the last decades, basically, mm. these paper sheets came into place because before that there was basically nothing and nowadays it basically turned into this big monster of like okay if I uh, if the patient gets surgery he needs to be educated and there's like four pages of paper mm. he needs to sign while actually the law only states patients need to be informed about the surgery the risks mm. the alternative treatments and there's a whole different creative way of how to visualize and explain that and that's what we we try to do and we also run different clinical studies to basically prove the, um, uh, the benefits of like video assisted personalized information yeah. uh, running against uh, the standard and the status quo that's basically just paper sheets. But for, for your specific use case, as long as the content is the same, the format that you present in it does not really matter. Yeah, basically the, the, the format doesn't matter because the law doesn't say it needs to be a piece mm. of paper. The law only basically says in, eventually the patient still needs to have the chance to talk about it with the doctor. And the doctor really needs to give the patient the opportunity to ask questions and yeah. to walk him through it. But what we're basically doing is to uh, empower patients before they actually go into the clinic and have mm -hmm. this conversation to provide them with personalized information to be more on an eye level with doctors so they are they can also be more proactive about their treatment and basically have a, the, the possibility to, to have an active part in the whole process. Awesome. And uh, Lucas, I have very little ideas about how hardware um, or how like prosthetics work. So I, I mean, I guess like when you make a change, it's like a pretty big process, right? Because you have to actually like physically change a product. From our side, yes, yeah. very much. <laughs> but it really differs, actually. Like, um, so you have different classes of medical mm -hmm. devices. Um, luckily, like uh, the product that we developed is a class one medical device. Mm -hmm. so it's like the lowest yeah. calculation. <laughs> exactly, yeah. because then we have no. Uh, it's not an invasive product. It's mm -hmm. really just used outside in our case. 
So we have to do biocompatibility and things like that, but it's not anything more. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, so most of this kind of like external mm. assistive devices, they usually have to go through a CDMARC process. So it's a lot more ISO testing, so mm. structural testing, mechanical testing, but not necessarily clinical yeah. setting. So what we do, we do like clinical testing inside the workshop to get like in, in the product development early stages, once we feel confident, we particularly run field trials to understand from a quality point yeah. how does the, the person feels in that scenario, how can we improve the product, but it's more from our interest to improve the product mm. from a user perspective rather than actually being fundamental or necessary or regulated that way. Interesting. And um, in terms of developing product that gives value to patients, what has been um, the most challenging aspect of that? And I think, I'm not sure if everyone will have the same answer or different answers, but it'd be interesting to see if there are similarities. Um, in our case, I think one of the challenges we see is, you know, each of the, each, each of the product uh, focuses on one, one condition, right, one symptom. So let's say, I don't know, panic or... Um, yeah. Chronic pain. Let's talk about chronic pain. Actually, mm. that's a good example because it, it's it's you're gonna have a very varied population using your product with very different type of symptom, very different background, and your solution is in the end one fits all. Uh, yeah. uh, it's not like it's not gonna adapt on the fly to whatever the patient writes in or. So it's a one symptom solution when the patient expects some level of customization or personalization to their experience, their pain, you know, their background. That is definitely. I would say right now, something that is hard to overcome, but I see really great um, uh, future with AI in that, in that regard. So really able to create on the fly therapeutic content that is much more custom to the patient's actual needs. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually quite, quite a similar story because for us, we, our goal is to cover like all treatments and procedures that are out there and, and that's a lot and content and having this like medically validated content is always a bottleneck for us to, uh, and especially in a video format and AI is already helping us with that with basically if you have like the voiceovers and um, the, the, the cutting technologies behind that, but Eventually, for us, it's always running against time because when we go into clinics and we pitch the product and the department say, oh, that's great. We actually want to give that to our patients. Mm -hmm. But do you also cover this, that and that? And we're always like, yeah, we're we're here for two years now. We, we just we, we can't have everything available for now. So um, speeding up that while at the same time being a startup uh, can be can be challenging sometimes. And other than the, the content perspective, I think there's also still the, the part of delivering that kind of information, especially in the, in the clinical sphere where the digitization process sometimes is still lacking behind due to regulations, due to data protections, uh, and basically bringing patient the information, not in a piece of paper, but saying, hey, here's a QR code, there's a link there, you receive your customized video, but then it always gets stuck somewhere in the clinical workflow of how do the, these information actually get to the patient? So it's almost like balancing this focus for you and the company um, versus like focus for the patient in terms of like this precision element. 
Exactly, and mm -hmm. and integrating that into clinical routines that yeah. are not made for you know that are not just being thought digitally. So there's a lot of analog workflows still happening, and uh, and I think always one of our biggest challenges of delivering uh, value to patients is uh, fighting against the status quo that's that's so heavily set in in doctors' mindsets sometimes. And Lucas, what about you? <coughs> Excuse me. No, I was just uh, actually yeah, thinking about it. I think that really, I, I feel that it really changes depending on where you're at and mm -hmm. what kind of public you're serving. Mm -hmm. When I compare to, I was thinking about myself and how I compare to that. So we develop products specifically for developing countries. Mm -hmm. And when you go to different regions and to different areas, like the, the needs are quite different and how you can implement something is also quite different. So I, I feel there's a more of a, a gap in infrastructure there. Mm -hmm. So like AI would not really play a role of how to increase the access to these devices. I feel like there's something that must be taken care of a little bit before that mm. uh, in terms of like, um, yeah, how do you actually uh, enable certain infrastructures to be in certain places for you? for people to have access to those health services mm. in particular. Um, although m most or almost all people have a cell phone and a, even more so a smartphone yeah. uh, in the developing world, I guess it still plays a difference of how, um, what's people's relationship to these devices and how big of importance it has into their lives. So in our case in particular, I feel like uh, there's a, if you think about like 3D printing or other kinds of like I'm talking about my industry in particular, mm. it's it is a viable solution, but it's still quite challenging for you to implement because of the technical needs and infrastructure and even knowledge behind those technologies to be able to implement on a large scale. Um, so I feel like there are some other things that could be taken care of also to to support this uh, increase in access. I see. So like when it's an infrastructure problem, is technology even the solution? Or low tech. <laughs> huh? Low tech maybe. Low tech. Yeah. yeah. I, guess it depends. I think technology is always uh, a good, uh, you can think of it in many different ways, you can implement it in different ways. Mm. So I guess it depends on what kind of technology would be used in each context. And that's, yeah. I mean, Pierre, have you ever thought about bringing like digital therapeutics to developing countries? Yeah, big time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a matter of um, resources and focus. Like mm. we're a tiny team compared to the challenge we are against right now. You know, we have 10 products and 100 people and two product managers for 10 products. And, you know, it just doesn't work. Like mm. you really need to, you know, our, our mission is to is to make mental health universally accessible. We, you know, mm. like the UN declared that mental health was a human right. And that's that's our mission. Um, the only way that we can make that happen is by finding a sustainable business model mm -hmm. that we can then leverage to bring it everywhere. Because there is, in theory, seriously yeah. no limit for a solution to be everywhere. All you need is a smartphone, right? Mm. Um, and a decent internet connection. So by now, actually, right, almost everyone, um, you know, 90%, 80% of the world can have access to that. But it's not possible because it's already so hard in a well-funded a healthcare market like Germany or France or the US to mm. even make it work there 
before you can make it work, where essentially you'll have to do it at no margin. And how have you guys dealt with basically operating in multiple countries? Because I'm guessing everyone here does something in Germany and then something somewhere else. So um, how do you manage that? Like in the, the kind of like both like translational component, but also cultural difference component. Um, well, um, some people say that if you can make it in the German healthcare market, you can make it anywhere. Um, so <laughs> I think that helps um, starting off starting off here. And um, then for us being active in Austria and Switzerland, of course, it's helpful because German is just like uh, the, the basic language there. But us offering a video product supported with AI, it's very easy to, for us to also include and play out different languages tailored to the patient's needs. Um, and culturally speaking, um, there, yeah, basically the, the clinical system is, is quite similar, even though there are some differences, but basically worldwide patients need to be educated prior to surgery or before procedures. And that of course also helps. And um, I'd also say that uh, we, we've, we went to the UK last year. We have also been in conversations with the US. Um, and I think the adoption with like smartphones and access to technology is, I think, sometimes easier in, in like other countries where basically people have an, a different adoption rate to these, to these mm. technologies. And if I see uh, people from South America, for example, they have a whole different uh, experience with smartphones, whereas in Germany, it's super hard to just send an SMS to someone or a WhatsApp. Or if you go to Asia and it's like, it's so normal to just communicate with each and everyone via WhatsApp. Of course, there are data protection rules and, mm -hmm. and that's okay. And, but basically, I think um, that's, that's one of the main challenges for us and um, also trying to, to get into new markets. Because as you also said, uh, it's a digital product and you can basically scale it worldwide. Um. It's, uh, yeah, I guess coming from a hardware world, it makes it a little bit different. I mean, what was important for us into, into the hardware? So I have not set up like operations in different markets mm. simultaneously, but I have, what I work with is a different distributor. So we're a B2B mm. business where we sell a product and they resell it to the workshops in their countries. And how to expand into that scenario, what it would be very, very important for us is the training. Mm -hmm. So to be able to pass on that knowledge, because that's actually the basis of you to be able to be successful implementing something. Uh, if you cannot train or if the training doesn't go as smoothly and as effective mm -hmm. as it should be, then there's a, a big chance that's going to be like some miscommunication in the way and... Do you mean training staff or training people to use your product or training patients to use your product, I mean? No, not patients, actually orthopedic technicians. Okay. That they, they will be the responsibles I see. for uh, fitting the prosthetic leg to the, oh, okay. to the patients yeah. or to that person. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have much to add, I think. Okay. Um, I guess this episode's about communicating value to patients, and we talked about how we can build value. Um, but in terms of how we communicate value, how much of that can we iterate? And um, in terms of the messaging, how sensitive do we need to be in terms of how we talk about the products we're building?
Um, in our case, sensitive aspect is making claims that you're not allowed to do. Um, so typically in the US, you know, if you're not FDA approved, uh, you cannot make claims of, of treatment effect, for instance, which is uh, frustrating when you have a product that has been, let's say, proven elsewhere, and yeah. you know that you have, let's say, 85% efficacy, and you can't just communicate about it. Um, otherwise, I think you have to be, what Lucas said earlier, actually, be very empathetic uh, in your messaging, mm -hmm. very careful, and uh, and remember that the patients probably have a very strong opinion of their own problem, of their own uh, thing they're dealing with, and not making quick assumptions about them. So the tone of voice is critically important when, have, when providing uh, medical content to a patient, and it's surprising how, how sensitive patients can be to that. And uh, we have a whole team of content experts dealing with that, of psychotherapists with you know, 10 years plus experience, specifically writing that content and no one else. And we talked about personalization earlier. Um, don't you feel like some patients want to be spoken to in a certain way and others in another? And then how do you kind of like factor in for that? Yeah, you have to, take, you have to pick one approach that fits your values most. Um, in our case, we are after approachability, trust, and efficacy. So we try to understand, especially in German, there's a massive difference between Z and do in the perception of it. And we know that we can't make everyone happy. We receive, you know, we are mostly using Z, and sometimes we get people complaining that they think it could be more approachable to be do. And then when we try do, we get way more complaints about people saying that it's too casual and they feel like they shouldn't be addressed as do because this and that, so um, I think that's typically in English much less of a problem, uh, but in French or even uh, in German and even I think in French, for instance, that's definitely, yeah, there's no good answer. Again, you have to try and test and see what works best. If I can pitch on that, um, I feel there's no message that fits everyone mm -hmm. or every public. Um, and I completely agree that it has to be something that resonates with your values and resonates with what you want to accomplish and you want to like persuade also with uh, the products that you're developing. And, and that being said, and also based on what you mentioned earlier, um, it's really delicate to, I mean, uh, the communication and the content creation uh, in, in a health center, that it, it's, it's such a delicate thing because we are like a business and we're selling products and we need to sell products to survive as an organization. Nevertheless, we're talking about health. And whenever you talk about health, you, it's just a, such a sensitive topic. Nobody wants to uh, see their health status as a commodity mm -hmm. and uh, as a commercial thing. So it, that's a, I think that's the, the delicate point because there is a commercial entity uh, that yeah. uh, is operating. Nevertheless, they're dealing with the very personal and sensitive topics of like private uh, life of a person. Mm. So that is, is where I think the line is very thin and the empathy part and it, it, that's fundamental. And I guess any health business would all be able to be successful if they literally understand the problems and be able to convey the message uh, to touch people in in a vulnerable spot, like they're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that is super important to understand that you're not just uh, shoving something down, like you're actually treating and talking to people that are in a very delicate, vulnerable situation and they require that sensitivity.
Yeah, I I can only uh, yeah add. I have nothing much more to add, but. Just as a basically, this is like our our core business communicating mm-hmm. like medically validated information, but also in uh, in a way that patients receive it positively, mm-hmm. and that's like super hard. And over the last years, this has been like mainly done like this information they they were compiled by doctors and um, legal experts. That's the all that was basically the only thing out there, and then new people coming up trying to transform that business and also what what you said we also have a team of psychologists and medical experts who are responsible to create that content to make sure that it is medical legally correct and valid but also at the same time in a voice in a tone of voice that patients feel appreciated and also patients feel heard and welcomed and especially if you need to educate a patient for a tumor resection for example and we did a lot of testing and shadowing in that field to really feel like, okay, what are these patients going through? How do you actually need to tailor and communicate and wrap this information? So afterwards, you really also have reduced anxiety. This is also something that we are also clinically validating a lot. How can we, with our um, information and our videos, reduce anxiety in patients before they undergo the surgery? Because this is also something that hasn't really been done that much before. Yeah, I think there is like um, probably a high level of sensitivity you need to have when you're communicating with patients because it's about their health care. And I feel like even outside of mental health, you're probably anxious about a lot of other conditions. Um, but switching gears a bit, um, it'd be good to kind of understand what what's the number one thing you would recommend to someone building a company startup in healthcare would be, and if we could share some stories about um, maybe some of like the victory moments you guys have had um, in terms of you know when you felt like, hey, I, I kind of made it, you know. <laughs> um... One thing to share, I mean, for medic, I mean, I would, for the health, in, in the health space, in the health tech space, I would say that bring a good balance of, you know, tech innovation with clinical expertise. Like, don't overlook the experts in the field and don't overlook the science and don't overlook the industry specificities, especially when it comes if you're serious about your business and you want to build something sustainable, understand understand how how payers, who are the payers, who is gonna pay for it, um, how can you market it? Because many entrepreneurs come from a consumer uh, field and they think, I'm just gonna build a cool app and when I put it out there, it's gonna be D2C on the app store, everybody's, everybody's gonna love it. And healthcare is the opposite of that. It's literally the opposite. So, you know, you're in Germany, you're in France, or even in the US, um, but mostly in Europe, I guess, people don't pay for health because they're already paying for health because it's taken from their taxes and they will not pay for your app. So understand that and and don't be cocky (laughs) and be patient. Uh, I think health, uh, I think it takes twice longer to to get anything done. So be, be, be ready to be patient. And the aha moment, um, I think it's, you know, I think we're way too early stage to say that we've made it. We haven't made it at all. Um, 
I think, of course, for us, maybe a great moment was when we got our first uh, Diga listed mm. two years ago. That was like that's uh, huge. That was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we got five more after that, but the first one was definitely felt definitely special. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I'd like to add to that because I think that's the most fundamental thing. You need stamina, and if you're building a startup from scratch in healthcare, you need to you need to know it's. It's not a sprint. It, it, it's it, yeah. It's a marathon, and I mean that's uh, not just like simple talking, but it's just that's really what it is. You can't uh, basically go in there and then expect that you will see a return on invest very very soon. Yeah. But there are some things and also some learnings. Uh, at least we, we we got along the way, and that's getting partners on board quite quite early and having like strategic partnerships if it's with big industry companies or if it's with clinics that's basically what helped us in the beginning to go into co-creation and Mm -hmm. basically not only uh, build a product and then like six months later go out with it and try and test it but keep keep your users super close by and then we were quite lucky that our um, our test users or our clinics that were working with us also mm-hmm. automatically transformed into our first clients. So yeah. then you you can already combine that and this and and basically this also helped us with fundraising eventually that mm-hmm. we not only said okay we have an MVP here and now we're trying to bring it to to the market or to test it but we already have paying like paying clients behind us. But um, yeah, there are like some some minor tweaks that that I definitely recommend if you're if you're building something. And when it comes to success success stories, uh, I th- also I, I don't think we're we're there yet. That we can say that we we made it, but we have a couple of uh, really great partnerships that we were able to make. Um, one of them also with an uh, endoprosthetic uh, company as well, um, helping us scale sales and bringing our solution into more clinics faster. And the other, um, and the other one is the, the first time that we a- actually got like real field feedback from a patient who mm-hmm. was undergoing a tumor resection, who who got back with us and said he was able to watch the video from home with his wife, and they were able to basically go through it, prepare for it together, and then he went back to the clinic and got the surgery. But he felt better taken care of and I think this is like really really big when you realize okay you're actually making a significant impact on a person's mm-hmm. health and perception of health. Maybe I, I would add maybe one thing that uh, Peter kind of grasped but uh, I think to understand the structure where you at mm. specifically because the person that is using your product is very likely not the same that is paying for it and it's very likely not the same that is applying it. So you have so many more yes. stakeholders mm. than a one-to-one thing and that is crucial for you to actually make a, a viable, feasible business model. And I think that is the case for most uh, healthcare setups. Yeah. Uh, not uh, So it's not something that happens rarely. So I feel like giving importance to that would be something uh, quite quite important and about the partnerships that you mentioned Mona and I feel that it comes together with that but have thought leaders in the industry beside mm. you and people that know that case yeah. specifically that could back you up if they're not backing you up you should improve what you're doing or you should change mm-hmm. somehow and as for an aha moment um, so I think a very 
important aha moment for me was to fail my previous business and mm. to actually go through the roller coaster of entrepreneurship. And that is a huge learning process and that gave me, uh, but that is not specific to the healthcare industry, but to my, to my journey as an mm. entrepreneur. And that was significantly impactful to how I run my second business. Cool, then this next question will be interesting. So what is the number one thing not to do? And what was like a moment where you wanted to like pull your hair out? Um, and I'm sure there's probably many, but the number one. Um, I'm not sure right now. I don't know if you guys want to start. I think the one thing of not to do that we definitely suggest, and maybe, well, actually, yeah, this is a trick question, actually, because maybe that plays a role for some people and not for others. Mm. Um, entrepreneurs usually love their own ideas and they think that they're the best and they're doing the right thing. And questioning that is extremely healthy and necessary. Mm. So not assume that you're on the best or unique path that you can take, but also allow possibilities that it could be different. Yeah, like don't assume you know, basically. Exactly, but at the same time, and that's yeah. why it's a bit tricky, you need that motivation to mm. actually get, you need to believe in yourself. Uh, so it's like, how do you balance, like, I'm really certain about, like, the thing that I'm building, but also but also having the humility to be to be okay with being completely wrong and then, with it. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and it's a little bit plain, mm. so... So it's about believing in you, but not necessarily in the idea. I see. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's true. It's, you said it in a very good way. So how to actually be and have the strength to move forward and take something with you all the way that it has to take, because sometimes you're going to go against yeah. the world. And that's going to happen. But at the same time, you have the ability to, hey, maybe this could be different. Uh, what would that person do? Mm. So I guess checking with other people and seeing like other people's opinions and not sticking to your own all the time that yeah makes a big difference and what was your hair burning uh you know shoot yourself in the face moment if you've had one so many <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i mean we're all human beings right mm. so i think we do have to go through failures we do have to go through challenges to actually be able to learn things so um not taking yourself as like failing it failing in one thing doesn't mean that you are a failure mm -hmm. and i think understanding that and understanding that uh, it's all part of a learning process it really makes a big difference yeah so yeah I, I, the one thing that happened is that uh, we had a certain yeah we, we're going through an investment round and a few months before the money was off and we were talking to investors for six months, all of a sudden the guy just dropped out and we had no time to find all the investors. So that was like, a, you know, like... Did, was that what killed the company? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, so the lead investor dropped out, basically. Yeah, the lead investor. Oh, God. It puts you in a delicate situation. Mm. It, it makes you, like, doubt your skills. It makes you, like, oh, I should have had many more investors. But anyway, middle of the pandemic, people were dropping out, like, you know, like it was a strong yeah. point. So it was not an easy, simple uh, thing, mm. uh, but yeah, and it makes you, 
makes you wonder. Same thing happened to us. Really? <laughs> After three oh, months, no. three months of the business, but we somehow survived it. But uh, it was a uh... with the same thing. The lead investor dropped out. I think it happened yeah. to all yeah. of us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to you live. You're very lucky. <laughs> So, so both of you too. Yes. Yeah. So you were raising around, and the lead investor dropped out. Yeah, after the term sheet was, was yeah. signed. After yeah. the term sheet was signed. Oh no, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that's just, oh, it's a classic move in Berlin, no? Like there was. It's not a Berlin sheet, thing. <laughs> no, I, I mean. Yeah. It's a shit thing. I've heard many mm. stories like that, so I think we're not alone. No, we got super lucky because we found someone else a few months after, but yeah. that was really a close shot, and he definitely could have killed the company before it even started, right? So that's, and I mean, generally speaking, I think right now we're very fortunate um, in our case to have very strong investors that understand the market. That maybe is an advice um, because uh, I've seen it being differently in other companies. Choose your investors very wisely. Don't get dumb money and really get people, and it sounds super cliche, but it does matter. Like don't pick somebody who doesn't understand the industry. Again, yeah. if you're talking about healthcare and you bring someone who comes from consumers and he is used to super fast growth and no regulation and, and so on, it's, he's not going to be happy. And if he's unhappy, he's going to put pressure and he's going to force you to make wrong decisions. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is the team. Like, take as long as it takes to find the right people. And I think at Hello Better specifically, I don't think I had like a hair burning moment. The only reason for it is because I'm surrounded by the best possible team anyone can dream of. Um, and if you have a strong team, you can almost accomplish anything. Yeah. Um, and so take your time. Be very strict on who, who you bring yeah. along. Um, set your values, your rules, and stick to them. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I think when building a new company, the first I th I'd say five, six hires are the most critical ones. Mm. And you really need to make sure that the team that you're getting on the same ship with is ready to sail into the, in the same direction. And that the team and the ones who get along know this will be a bumpy ride. So and don't not hire just random people. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean <laughs> you should never hire just random people, right? But uh, really, yeah. really make sure that, mm. that, and especially at the point where you maybe not have like set or, or settled for mm. uh, your values and you're still in the process of defining that. Mm. So I think it's super crucial in the beginning to make sure that you find the right people with the right qualities and the right skill set to not just also not only wear one hat, but because in the beginning we're all like going from left to right and back and forth and everybody needs to chip in. And also, I mean, even though it might be cheaper, it might be easier to hire an, in, inter, like, an intern or a working student or whatsoever, I think the first six, seven people are the reason of make or break. And mm. these are the people who will build it up from the, from the ground. And also maybe just to, because I completely align <laughs> with, what you, with what you said, um, also in terms of fundraising. Mm. And also something what we were also a little bit um, yeah, annoyed with in the end, that we could have started earlier with fundraising. So especially that you need to know it is a long process. And also in healthcare, also really decide actively who you want the money to come from. Mm -hmm. is, it, is a VC really the best option for you, especially when you know what VCs are looking for, like turnover, um, 
you need to be profitable by XYZ. And we all know in healthcare, you, you can't just like make patients yeah. pay for something. Also clinics don't have this like uh, really, really good budgeting system that, okay, there's a, a, a pot for that and we can pull money out from there. But it's like really hard to get your solutions reimbursed. And until you found mm. the perfect business model or the one that is working in that field, and we flipped it over two, three, four times already over the last three years, mm. And yeah. you need people on board who who are willing to go that road with you because you won't be done after one or two rounds. You need to have the support of these people to also go beyond that. And um, for us, at least, we had like great angel investors um, and basically also really looking out for strategic partnerships and partnerships not only to for on on an operative level but also on an investment level that help you. Uh, give you access into the domain, into clinics, give you access to other uh, strategic partnerships that, that help you sail that boat. But what was your hair-burning moment? The, the hair-burning, hair-pulling moment? I, 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 I don't think I ever really had one other than, okay, money is running out and yeah. investor pulled out and why didn't we start earlier and why didn't we see that coming? Mm. But also at the same time, also super cliche, I think these are the, the, the moments you learn from the most and um, helps you prepare for next time. Uh, not really the, the, the answer you, you're looking for, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll hear crazier stories exactly. after. <laughs> okay, um, does anyone else have anything they want to talk about? No? Okay. I just had, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I had one more thought based on what yeah. uh, when I said earlier that, because we talked a lot about the challenges, mm. and just to maybe end on a positive note, yeah. Uh, yeah. that there is one thing, it's again very cliche, but it's so very true that when you work in healthcare, you do get satisfaction, that's what Mona mentioned, uh, of getting positive feedback from people that whom you've literally changed their lives. And that is, it's, you know, people always say, oh, you need to work something that is meaningful. Yeah, but actually it's true. <laughs> like, yeah. Actually, when you're fortunate enough to receive these feedbacks on a daily basis, it helps you go through the hard times. That's it. You just feel motivated. You feel confident that you're doing the right thing. Um, and yeah, that's, it's worth it. So I would say overall, it's worth it to go through the healthcare road, <laughs> difficult road. Yeah.